Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to a weekend at the Tudor Court, a two-day online event that's taking place on the weekend of the 21st and the 22nd of October. Enjoy talks by seven leading Tudor history experts, all from the comfort of your home. Participants will have access to all content for a full month after the event ends, so there's plenty of time to catch up if you're unable to watch any of the lectures over the weekend. To learn more and to register your place, head to my website on thetudortrail.com or just Google a weekend at the Tudor Court event bright. I do hope you'll consider joining me. As always, I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors Patreon community to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Claire Martin to the show to talk about her new book, Heirs of Ambition, The Making of the Berlins. Dr. Martin is an historian specialising in the history of London and the late medieval period. She's worked on a number of London companies, including the Woolman and the Girdlers, and her PhD looked at London's medieval transport industry. She's currently working on behalf of the Yorkist History Trust to publish the executor's accounts and remarkably detailed probate inventories of the former House of Commons speaker, Sir Thomas Charlton. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Claire. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Yes, I've been very much looking forward to our chat. So let's just start with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, so my specialism actually isn't Tudor. It's medieval London, which was um, the subject of my PhD, uh, looking at passenger transport and the maintenance of streets and how the city kept moving. I've done a bit of teaching and all sorts of different projects since then, some of them relating to my specialism, such as the London livery companies, but uh, quite wide ranging, such as the 
19th century designs by John Nash for the houses around Regent's Park. But it's a while since I've done anything that um, was really my interest, which is where this book came from. Oh, what a fabulous background. So we are actually here to talk about your new book, which is called Heirs of Ambition, The Making of the Berlins. So do you want to tell us just a little bit more about what inspired this particular work? So um, probably unlike every other person who's written about the Berlins, I actually didn't come at this from an interest in Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn or the the Tudor court. I came at it from my interest um, in medieval London. So I came across first Geoffrey Boleyn, who was Anne Boleyn's great-grandfather, who was a medieval Londoner. And obviously he has a very famous name. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I investigated that a bit more. And what I found was the bare bones of the Boleyn story, which usually gets a few pages in the front of a book about Anne Boleyn. But from my background in medieval London, I realised that there actually were quite a lot of other sources. Medieval London has good surviving sources that could be used to say a lot more about him um, and make him and the wider Berlin story real people and individuals. Because sometimes he can appear just as, oh, Geoffrey Berlin made an awful lot of money and made them rich. And then let's move on. Yes, exactly. So before we talk a little bit more about the the two Jeffrey Berlins, because there are two and people sometimes get them mixed up, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the early Berlin family? So the Berlins came from Norfolk, from a small village called Saul, north of Norwich, and they were always free peasant farmers rather than unfree villain tenants. The earliest member of the family that we can put a name to is John Boleyn, but we can't really say much about him. So the earliest member of the family that we know anything about is called Nicholas Boleyn. Um, and he rather conveniently gets into some trouble with his manorial lord in Saul in 1332. And his, his sheep stray and cause damage. And he has 12 of his sheep seized that will be returned to him when he corrects the damage that has been caused. But that's quite useful to me because that means that we know that he owned at least 12 sheep which is indicative of where the family sat in the village hierarchy so if he had at least 12 sheep and he probably had more because they wouldn't have taken his whole flock then he was at least in the middle and probably towards the upper end of the village hierarchy But this area of Norfolk is interesting because it wasn't just a pastoral area. It had a second string to its bow in the textile industry. So initially linen production, but then by the 14th century, worsted cloth, um, a type of woolen cloth. Um, And Saul was particularly known for making woolen caps or hats. So the Berlins were never just farmers and the families that they lived with would have been the same. They had this secondary source of manufacturing income. So interesting. So tell us a little bit more about now the the Jeffrey Berlins, the two Jeffrey Berlins that you... you yeah, one about. after another. Yeah. <laughs> As I say, Norfolk um, was very heavily populated. So the families had tiny land holdings often that could barely support them, hence the development of a textile industry. But after the Black Death, with the population much reduced, land was more freely available and the Berlins and other families began to gradually increase their land holdings and with it their wealth. So by the early 15th century, the elder Jeffrey Berlin had become one of the leading men in his village. Um, And he was um, intimately involved in building Saul's huge 15th century church, which is still standing and barely touched. And then in 1434, he was recognised on a national level as being one of the leading influential people in in this particular area of Norfolk and was required to swear an oath against maintaining or harbouring lawbreakers. But he had reached the top of his village, if you like. So he had to make a choice about what happened next to his children. And the usual fast tracks to success for families that were on the up and ambitious was either sending their children into the church, into the law or into commerce. So Geoffrey sent his son Thomas to Cambridge and then he had a career in the church. And his son Geoffrey 
to London as an apprentice with a hatter named Adam Book, who he probably knew through Saul's involvement in hat manufacture. And Geoffrey then went on to an incredibly successful mercantile career in London. He didn't stay as a hatter, which was a relatively small guild for very long. And he transferred to the much more wealthy and powerful guild of the Mercers. And he would go on to be sheriff, MP for London, alderman and ultimately mayor of London. And then so by the time he died in 1463, his cash bequests amounts to around £5,500 plus property worth several thousand pounds more, which would be an equivalent fortune to the famously wealthy Richard or Dick Whittington. And he left a charitable fund worth around £1,200. Wow, so he already had quite a quite a lot of money. In one of- lifetime, he made a vast amount of money, wow, yes. That's impressive. I actually recently went on a bit of a Berlin pilgrimage in, in Norfolk myself. So I visited uh, Blickling and I visited Saul Church and was amazed by the size of that church kind of in this you Yeah, know, I was little, astonished little the first time I moved in, yeah, yeah, not knowing what was going to be there. And you no. walk in and you see this font with the huge 15th century lifting mechanism that would have taken the cover off. It's amazing. Absolutely. So if anyone's listening and, you know, and can make Make it there. I highly recommend it. It's fabulous. So talk us through some of those events in the sort of 14th and 15th centuries that the Berlins witnessed and that they actually lived through. So this comes into the book a lot because the Berlins were rising up through a period that was really turbulent and very changeable. So John Berlin, who is still in Saul, was lucky enough to survive the Black Death, which hit Saul particularly hard, although he would certainly have had relatives whose names we don't know who weren't as lucky. His son Thomas lived then through the Peasants' Revolt, which did affect Norfolk, and the violence came very close to Saul, but the Berlins don't seem to have been directly involved. But the adjoining manor to Saul, um, called Stinton, which was partly in Saul. The manor court rolls there were burnt by the rebels. Fortunately, the main manor in Saul, which was Kirkhall, the rolls were untouched. Very fortunate for me because a lot of the information about the family at this stage comes from the manorial court rolls and we really wouldn't know much about them without that. Then in London, Geoffrey Boleyn lived through Cade's Revolt in 1450, which saw the city overrun and brutal beheadings of those blamed for the failures of the government. And his father-in-law at that time, Lord Thomas Who, was one of those involved in the government failures and the loss of territory in France. So the family must have worried that they would be in the firing line when the rebels ran out of more direct targets. Fortunately, Londoners got their city back before that happened. And then as the Wars of the Roses progressed, Geoffrey, the younger Geoffrey, was um, part of London's governing council and involved in trying to keep the city neutral um, and not become a place of fighting that the various sides were fighting over. Personally, he leant towards the Yorkist side and Edward IV later recognised his service to his father, Richard, Duke of York. Sadly, without telling us specifically what that service was, um, but given Geoffrey's position, I think it was probably financial. Londoners could not be compelled to provide troops to fight outside the city, so he didn't get involved in any fighting. But after his death with his sons established um, in the landed gentry, they couldn't really avoid fighting and taking a side. So Geoffrey's eldest son, Thomas, joined the affinity of Richard, Duke of Gloucester. And then he died two weeks after the Battle of Barnet in London, and I think probably from injuries sustained in the battle. Um, His younger brother, William, also continued a loyalty to Richard as he became Richard III. And he was knighted at his coronation and became a Knight of the Bath. But he was a useful local administrator and probably wasn't significant enough to be punished by Henry VII after Bosworth. So he sails through into the Tudor period without too many bumps. Certainly are a colourful family that witnessed a lot. That's that's incredible. So what did you uncover about the Berlin women during your research? 
So the Berlins are a family who have plenty of interest in women before their most famous female member. In particular, Jeffrey's wife, Anne, who was actually the person who brought the name Anne into the family. She seems to have been a very good match for him in his commercial enterprises. Um, as a widow, she was able to deal very astutely with her uncle who was childless and therefore she and her half-sisters were um, in line to inherit after him and she used his need for money and her no shortage of wealth um, to ensure that he settled the bits of her inheritance that she wanted, the prime bits, on her and her son before he died. And she may even have continued Geoffrey's business affairs in London. There's records of um, £600 being owed to her and two of her sons-in-law for merchandise that had been purchased in London. And this is 10 years after Geoffrey died. On the other hand, there is another lady called Cecily, the younger Geoffrey Boleyn's sister, who is completely fascinating. And I wish I knew more about her because she chose a very different life from most women in this period, choosing never to marry and to consciously remain celibate, but never entering a religious house. And Geoffrey placed great trust in her and used her twice as a feffy or trustee for the property he was buying, which is very unusual for a single unmarried woman. Um, and he probably also paid for her memorial brass, which was made in London um, and celebrates the way she lived her life. And I think it's interesting that um, she was based in Norfolk and very close to Norwich, which was a very religious city in this period. And it, it's surely no coincidence that Norwich is the only place in England known to have had at least two and possibly three communities of women such as Cecily living together, dedicated to a life of chastity, but not in any formal religious house. Um, similar to institutions in the Low Countries that are called beguinages. We don't know for sure that Cecily was actually living in one of these houses because there's very little information about them. But she must have had some sort of contact being so close. It would be peculiar if she was so isolated from these other women living the same unusual lifestyle that she had chosen for herself. So interesting. I, I rarely hear about anything about Cecily, so that's wonderful to at least have a little more of a, a taste of her, I suppose. So the the um, Berlin men, of course, made some incredibly advantageous marriages. Do you want to tell us a little bit about some of these? You've already mentioned one there. Yeah, well, as they rose up uh, and became more wealthy and powerful, there were two successive generations of men who married heiresses. But the interesting thing about them is that they weren't guaranteed to be heiresses when the marriages took place. So Geoffrey married Anne, the daughter of Thomas Who, Sir Thomas Who, when they married, but soon became Lord Who and Hastings. And she was his only child when their marriage took place. But around the same time, he married again, her father married again, so could have had any number of further sons. And he also had a married brother who could have had sons. So it must have seemed highly likely that Anne would be supplanted um, as her father's heiress. But the Boleyns were lucky and Thomas, whose second marriage produced only three more girls and his brother had no children at all. So Anne and through her, the Boleyns did inherit. And then later, um, her son William married Margaret Butler, daughter of Thomas Butler, who was ultimately Earl of Ormond. But when they married by 1469, all of the Butler brothers were under attainder for their Lancastrian loyalties. So it was a bit of a gamble. Even if the attainder was reversed, Margaret's father was not the next in line to become heir of Ormond. He had an elder brother before him. But again, the Boleyns were lucky. Thomas Butler's elder brother, John, died unmarried. And Margaret and her sister, Anne, became uh, the heiresses to the Ormond lands in England and also inherited a claim to the earldom of Ormond. So luck on the Boleyn side at this point. There is quite a <laughs> lot of luck, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and you've already talked a little bit about some of the Boleyns that entered royal service, but do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So as I mentioned, Geoffrey's son Thomas served Edward IV's brother Richard when he was Duke of Gloucester, and William continued that. And had Richard's reign lasted longer, must have hoped that he would gain considerable advantage from this. But he continued to serve Henry VII locally in Norfolk and Kent. So William was one of those leading gentry figures who turns up at court for big set-piece ceremonial events, such as the creation of Prince Henry as Duke of York or the reception of Catherine of Aragon, but he didn't hold any official court position. So the sort of local government service that he was involved in was not the sort of thing that came with privileged access to the monarch or the glamour and prestige of the court, but it was essential in keeping the country governed. The the royal government couldn't be a reality without people like him all around the country putting that into effect. Serving as he served as sheriff in Norfolk and Suffolk and also in Kent and as a JP on, on numerous local commissions. So it's not until William's son Thomas is re- recorded as an esquire of the body in 1509 that the Boleyns held any formal position at court. And so with the with all those great marriages that we were just talking about came a lot of fantastic properties as well, and they had quite an impressive property portfolio. So do you want to tell us about some of the, the places that they bought or inherited? So as many, many London merchants did, if they made enough money, towards the end of their life, they started to transfer their liquid capital into bricks and mortar and into specifically rural property rather than London property. It was much less profitable for them. They could make a lot more money by keeping that money moving around in business in London, but it was essential to buy their family into the landed gentry. So Geoffrey had already acquired a large merchant's house in London on Milk Street and other property in the city, but he added Blickling in Norfolk which was very close to Saul, and he paid over the odds for it, I think so that he could return to the area of his birth and present himself as a newly rich, self-made lord of the manor. He builds a a family chapel in um, the church at Blickling, which had stained glass originally in the window describing him as lord of the manor of Blickling. And he then also rebuilt and vastly extended the house, and the antiquarian John Leyland records that Geoffrey Boleyn built a large house of brick at Blickling, which was probably a vast second courtyard extension to the small manor house that was already there. He acquired various other manors in Norfolk to provide an income. But crucially for him, he had two sons rather than one. So he specifically planned the property that he was buying to accommodate both of them, which that is what prompted his expansion into Kent and the purchase of Hever Castle. The idea being that his younger son, William, would inherit the property in Kent and London and his elder son, Thomas, the property in Norfolk, so that they could both establish themselves as leading members of the local gentry, but in separate counties where they wouldn't be in competition with each other. And then from the Who family inheritance came Luton Who in Bedfordshire, which until the death of Thomas Butler in 1515, when they acquired a lot more property, was the Boleyn's only other country house. And I think that might possibly be where Thomas Boleyn and his new wife, Elizabeth Howard, and Boleyn's mother and father had to start their married life before Thomas's father, William, died in 1505. It seems that William was um, disinclined to share and was determined not to disrupt the pattern of his life that had been there for years of living between Blickling and Hever and using both houses. And he seems to have kept both for himself until his death. Wonderful. And and so your book's blurb states from the fields of Norfolk to the royal court when talking about the Boleyn family. So how is it? And and you have, of course, touched on this, but maybe if you could summarise, how do you think it is that the Boleyns were able to make such a transition? And what do you think was the, the key to their success? 
I think the short answer to that is the amazing success of Jeffrey Berlin. But it wasn't that straightforward. Sometimes it makes it, the story can look as if oh, they go to London, he becomes incredibly rich, and then off they go into the gentry and then marrying into the aristocracy. But there was no guarantee that simply going to London and getting an apprenticeship would result in that. Um, in fact, only around 10% of London citizens managed to make enough money to buy even one rural manor. And Geoffrey bought multiples and huge country houses. So he was in a very um, tiny section, even of the, the successful London citizenry. So to explain that, I think there's a huge amount of individual talent. There clearly seems to have been no shortage of that in the family. But the Berlins weren't doing anything unusual. I expected that initially to find that they were doing something remarkable to explain their success. Really, they were using the same routes to success that other people were using and other families were doing similar things. They just seem to have been doing it particularly well, particularly Geoffrey. And I think part of that explanation has to come from his relationship with his master. Geoffrey and Adam Book were not just simply apprentice and master. There seems to have been a very close relationship. So close, in fact, that Geoffrey includes him in his family chantry as if he is a second surrogate father. So having a master, and Adam Book was not just a person making hats, he was a wealthy and successful merchant himself. So Geoffrey had someone who could not only see him through his apprenticeship, but also give him the best possible training and to someone he was close to who could act as a mentor and ensure he got the best start. So I think that set him up well. But as we've mentioned, the Berlins also had a huge dose of luck, um, not just in those women who became heiresses, but crucially in having many children and multiple sons over several generations. So even amongst medieval Londoners who were hugely successful, what happens is that often families just stop. London needs to be constantly replenished by immigrants because often families died out either immediately because they had no children or after a generation or two. So I think part of the Berlin story is their ability to outrun this and to achieve a lot really quickly before the inevitable happened and the family line died out. The irony is, of course, that having produced all these multiple generations and many sons, a son failed them just when Anne Boleyn needed it most. Yeah, it's just the story just gets more extraordinary by the minute, doesn't it? it you really can't yeah. make it up. So you were talking about Cecily before. That is a, a bit of a lesser known Berlin. But who are some of the other lesser known Berlins that you came across? Yeah, I, I think Cecily is probably my favourite. I would do wish I knew more. But I'm also fascinated by Jeffrey's daughter, Anne, who married a man called Henry Hayden. Um, and the relationship between that couple and Anne's brother, William, they seem to have been a real threesome. So Henry Hayden spent some time living with the Boleyns at Blickling as a boy, ended up marrying Anne. But it seems also forming a lifelong friendship with her brother, William. Whenever William appears in the records doing anything on a commission in legal transactions, Henry Hayden is with him. And often their names are next to each other as if they went together in people's <laughs> minds. And the two families lived near each other in Norfolk. But the Haydens didn't own property elsewhere. And the threesome seemed to have been so inseparable that the Haydens bought a manor around a day's ride from Hever and built their own house there, Wickham Court. The house is now a school, but there still survives in the house evidence of the real affection between Henry and his wife, Anne. So as Henry VIII later did at Hampton Court, he decorated the house with H and A initials. And they're carved still deeply into the, the surround of the fireplace. And then in the stained glass in the windows, which originally actually would have been in the church, but are now back in the house, there is a H and an A bound together with a wedding band. 
So the Boleyns, I think, come across as a very stable and close-knit family, which is something Henry Hayden probably lacked in his own family. So he did have a younger sibling, but his father, rightly or wrongly, was so convinced that the, um, his second child was not his, that he threatened to kill the child and to cut off his wife's nose if they came anywhere near him. Neither of them are ever heard of again. She is put aside and we don't really know what happened to her. She presumably went into a religious house. So for William, I think Henry was a substitute for the brother he had lost after Thomas's death. And for Henry, the Boleyns perhaps provided the siblings and the wider family that he had never had. What a touching story. I think you're absolutely right. The Boleyns always operate as a team, don't they? So it seems that he... Yes, part, part I think that probably contributes that probably contributes to their success as well as other families didn't. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And finally, what did you learn about Thomas Boleyn's relationship as in the, the famous Anne Boleyn's father with his mother, Margaret? So there are a lot of Thomases Lots in this story. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Anne Boleyn's father, Thomas. His mother, Margaret, the Margaret Butler who married William, lived for an incredibly long time. She's like a continuity character who stretches so far through this story. So she lived an, until she was probably around 80. So all through Anne's time as queen. So she lived to see two of her grandchildren executed. And then she just about outlived her son Thomas as well. But she had to rely on him quite heavily. So by 1515, uh, she was already, when her father died, she was already unwilling to travel as far as London and wanted Thomas to sort her affairs out for her. Um, and then from 1519, she is described as suffering from madness. As she was very old, I think if this has been considered at all, it's been assumed that she had dementia. And that's initially what I assumed as well. However, it did occur to me that from 1519 to 1539 or 40, when she died, is a very long time. So I sought advice. I don't know anything about dementia. Um, and I got some help from Professor Tom Denning at the Dementia Centre at Nottingham University, um, who confirmed what I suspected, that even today with earlier diagnosis um, and medication, people rarely live for more than 10 years with dementia. So it's unlikely she actually had that. Now, the language, there's a very specific language used to describe her symptoms, suggest frenetic or energetic behaviour and a loss of control, but also an illness that comes and goes. So she um, is described as having lucid periods where she she seems to be fine. And I'm told that the most common illness that meets that description is actually bipolar disorder. So Margaret only came to the attention of the crown after her son Thomas died. So it was normal for problems such as this to be dealt with within families, as long as the family had a responsible person to take charge. And for Margaret, that person was Thomas. So we don't know where she was for the whole of those 20 years, but certainly by the end, she was living at Hever with him and quite possibly had been for quite a while. So Thomas would have obviously been able to afford to hire servants to look after her when she was ill. But Hever is not a huge rambling mansion where you can put your mad relative away in the <laughs> attic and forget about them. If he wanted to do that, he could have put her in Blickling. So she must have been part of his everyday life, a, a presence in the house. So I think when you think about Thomas Boleyn, I think today we could only describe his career at court as highly stressful. Um, he had to deal with the death of two of his children and caring for an elderly relative with mental health problems. And I think today we would regard any of those as a major life challenge. And he had to deal with three at the same time. 
Yes, and I think it paints a very different picture to the the Thomas Berlin that's sometimes portrayed in, in popular fiction and things as being just uncaring and just, you know, self-serving. Yes, sort of stuff. I think if he was if he was that person, he would have put her away in Blickling with exactly. some servants and forgotten about her, but he clearly is not that person. Absolutely. Oh, what a wonderful discussion, Claire. Thank you. There's there's something else we do on Talking Tudors, yep. and I call that 10 to go. So these are just 10 questions to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one, what is an inspiration? place close to your home that you like to visit? Oh, well, I'm very lucky to live next to a National Trust property. You are lucky. Um, a 17th century and very well-preserved National Trust property called Ham House near Richmond. Um, and that is a beautiful place to go. The grounds are particularly lovely. My dogs, who you might have heard earlier, like the um, doggy ice cream in the cafe. <laughs> oh, doggy so, ice cream. That's cute. Yeah, I'm very lucky to live so close to that, that we can just walk down the road. That's fabulous. I'll have to look that one up. I don't really know that one, actually. So I'll, I'll Google it after this. And what about a new skill that you might like to learn? Sometimes I think I should go back to bookbinding. I, d- I did a little bit of bookbinding years ago and have forgotten quite a lot of it. And it involves quite a lot of equipment that I, I never acquired. But um, when I look at some of the books I have that are coming apart, I think, oh, I really should go back and get better at that and learn how to put them back together myself. There you go. I don't think anyone's ever mentioned that skill. Nobody's ever said bookbinding. <laughs> I don't think so. No. Um, and what about the last book that you read? The last book that I read, well, well I'm partway through Simon Thurley's Houses of Power. Oh, yes. And so I've just finished Tracy Borman's new book on Elizabeth and Anne Boleyn. Wonderful. So quite a lot both. of Tudor stuff for oh, a medievalist. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and both of those are absolutely wonderful books. And what do you like to do to relax and unwind? Mostly walk. Yeah, with the dogs. Um, and I'm lucky to live in an area with a lot of green space near Richmond Park. So uh, I couldn't live without a lot of walking. I certainly get my steps in. Yeah, wonderful. And I was going to ask you if you had any pets, but you've answered that. So you've got one dog or two dogs, did you say? I've got the two, dogs. two dogs. Yeah, two Celium Terriers, which are a rare Welsh breed. And what about a, a travel destination, somewhere that you'd like to visit? I've never been to Bruges. And well, the, it was also very relevant to Geoffrey Berlin and his trading with the Low Countries. But yeah, I've never been to Bruges, so I would really like to go there. Absolutely. And what about uh, the last film or perhaps a series that you watched? Oh, it's not going to be historical. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that's all good. The last series I loved was a Netflix series called um, Lucifer. The devil comes down to earth uh, and has a holiday. <laughs> right. Yes, that sounds fun. I like the sound of that. <laughs> and what about what is your favourite season and why? Oh, definitely autumn. We're going into Thank autumn you. here. Yeah. As soon as I can get jumpers out, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're heating up here now in Sydney. It's really hot. Oh. But autumn's my favourite one as well. I just find it very cosy and relaxing. Yeah. Uh, what about a signature recipe or something that you'd enjoy cooking? Oh, you're asking the wrong person. I hate cooking. Do you? That's all right. <laughs> Do you have someone to cook for you? That would be really good. Oh, if only. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. And last one, is there a favourite artwork? And it doesn't have to be a, a 16th century artwork, Tudor artwork, although it might be a favourite artwork that you that you really enjoy. Oh, anything by Turner or the portrait of Anne of Cleves. Oh, I love that. That one. famous, I do love that portrait of Anne of Cleves. Yeah, that is gorgeous. Absolutely. And the very last, last thing is the Tudor takeaway. So I ask all my guests for a takeaway, something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. 
Yep. So my Tudor takeaway, um, a bit like me and my book, is both medieval and Tudor and is a bit of a flashback. So back in 2016, the VNA had an amazing exhibition of Opus Anglicanum, which is um, medieval embroidery, but there were also several items from the early Tudor period. The exhibition is no longer on, but I've recently discovered that quite a lot of the photography and details about the exhibits are still available on the Victoria and Albert Museum website. And amazingly, online, you can zoom in on the high-res digital images and look at the incredible talents of English embroiderers. To be honest, better than you could in the real-life exhibition when you were looking at things in cabinets and they're very tiny and a long way away. So yeah, look up Opus Anglicanum on the VNA website. It's well worth a look. That sounds wonderful. And I'll add the link to our show notes. And believe it or not, in 200 and what are we up to? 23 episodes. No one's ever mentioned that. So you're doing really well. Really? <laughs> Probably because it is quite a lot of medieval stuff. <laughs> so that's awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk tutors with us. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.